0: Original and uncut, this is The Addendum. Welcome to episode 131 of The Addendum. My name is Eric. A couple of quick notes. There are a number of sound problems in this recording. I did my best, but many still remain. Hopefully it is tolerable. If not, I may decide to revise and re-record this story in a couple of years. As far as the content is concerned, this is a new story that cannot be found anywhere else. Unlike other stories that have been featured, I did not censor myself like I am prone to do. Nothing has been omitted and it has not been revised. The content and themes are more mature compared to previous content on this podcast. If at any point the listener is offended, it is recommended that they turn off the podcast and wait for the next episode. This story does not blink and it does not pull any punches. It simply tells the truth of the story being told. Feedback and comments are welcome. Send those to addendumpodcast at gmail.com or addendumpodcast on Twitter. Without any further delay, the story will now begin. In the Court of Kings by Keith Eric Brandt. It was getting dark when Maggie woke. She winced as she sat up. Her left shoulder and hip hurt from sleeping on the concrete floor. There was no light in the room except for the dimming tones of silver gray that filtered in beneath the storage room door. The storeroom was completely empty except for a few metal shelves that were covered in decades of dust. Everything else had been scavenged and cleaned out long ago before she was born. It did not matter. Maggie carried all the supplies she needed in her backpack, and she did not need much. It had been three years since her father had died from an infection he had contracted while mixing compost for the burnoff fields. There were no antibiotics available. There was nothing that could have saved him. Despite that, she had managed to get by on her own in the untamed and effectively lawless world she was born into. She picked up her backpack and quickly checked to make sure she did not leave anything behind. Then she went to the door and listened for a moment. Everything was quiet. She unlocked the door and removed a board she had braced beneath the handle before laying down to rest. When she tried to open the door, the handle would not turn. She popped the switch back and forth, trying to disengage the lock, but the mechanism was no longer attached to anything. Maggie expelled a small breath of frustration, already displeased with how her day had begun. She set down her backpack and unzipped a side pocket to retrieve a book of matches and a disposable votive candle. She struck a match, and it sputtered to life. The flame flickered for a moment as she lit the candle and then began to burn with resilience, raising the visibility in the room from extant to workable. She took a Phillips and a flathead screwdriver out of her backpack and then examined the door handle. The room had been a perfect choice. There were no windows. It was small, the door was the only way in, and the room itself was relatively removed from areas typical of pedestrian traffic. No one would find the room unless they were looking for a place to hide. Getting locked inside the room was not a big deal. It was not the first time it had happened, and in fact, that was one of the primary reasons she carried a small set of tools with her. Having to dismantle the lock was merely an inconvenience. She removed the handle guard, popped the knob off, pulled the latch back, and the door was open. It was as simple as that. The air outside was fetid and rancid, thick with the lingering whispers of disease and decay. Before her father died, he had told her that he had never seen it as bad as it was back then. What he could not have predicted at the time was that it was worse now than it had ever been before. Maggie took a 9 millimeter pistol out of her backpack. She checked to make sure the clip was full and readied a bullet into the chamber. There was no public order. Municipalities had dissolved after being defunded more than a decade earlier because they were deemed too costly and they only helped individuals who were too poor to live in the protected zone. There was no sanitation, no water, no electricity, and there was no food available except for what was grown in the burnoff fields. Maggie carried the pistol casually as she walked the quiet and abandoned street. She gently rocked her hand back and forth, keeping the muscles in her arm loose and ready. She preferred traveling at night. Far fewer people were out after dark. Most individuals barricaded themselves in a secure holdout until morning light. Even though the majority of people who were out at night tended to be far more dangerous, she preferred it because it was a lot easier to identify those who were a threat from those who were not. She was not worried about being killed or even hurt in any way. She knew how to handle a gun, and she had learned how to make every bullet count. The only genuine fear she worried about was being abducted and taken somewhere against her will. That is what had happened to her mother. One of Maggie's few memories of her mother was helping her pluck feathers from pigeons that were being prepared for dinner. Her mother kept her dark hair tightly pulled back behind her head to keep it out of her eyes. She was a tall and slender woman who was both stern and compassionate. Her father had returned home from the burn-off fields in the last light of a late spring day. He was clearly distressed and upset, but his tone remained calm and even as he spoke. He told her mother about a horrible deal a co-worker and friend of theirs, named Frank, had made with some politicians that would gain him and his 12-year-old daughter, Gina, safe passage into the protected zone. Maggie found the news upsetting because she had always considered Gina a friend, despite only meeting her a couple of times and being less than half her age. A month later, her father had found Frank's body among the desiccated animal corpses that were waiting to be ground up and mixed in with the compost that was spread upon the fields. The bargain Frank had agreed to was that he would allow the elders who controlled the politicians to spend time with his daughter because they were old men who missed the touch of youth. It was clear that if the two of them had indeed made it to their destination, Frank's usefulness had expired as soon as he handed over his daughter. When Maggie's mother disappeared less than a year later, her father said she had been abducted by men who had taken her to the protected zone against her will. That summer, the government announced that people living outside of the protected zone would have to sustain themselves on food from the burnoff fields because it was far too expensive to raise crops uncontaminated by industrial runoff and other groundwater contamination. The burnoff fields had initially been reserved for food that was sold to impoverished countries that were unable to provide for themselves the government allocated a portion of the profit from the sale of the burn-off food to all of the citizens who worked in the fields. Over time, the allocated money became less and less until all of the workers, who were by that time a majority of the population, were provided with an amount of burn-off food commiserate with the amount of time they had worked. This was the only world Maggie knew, but it was not the way it had always been. Her father had told her that before she was born, most people had what he referred to as regular jobs. Prior to the change in compensation, and long before her mother had been abducted, her father had said they would never eat burn-off food unless they absolutely had to, because it was full of toxins. Her mother used to take her hunting while her father was at work. She taught Maggie how to move undetected through brush and across leaves and twigs. She showed her how to line up a target with the sights of a gun and how to make every bullet count. Maggie pulled herself from the haze of her memories as she realized two shadowy figures had appeared from behind an abandoned car about a hundred feet in front of her. She could tell they were men from the way they walked. She quickly scanned the area to check if there were others on her periphery. Normally, Maggie would have found cover to wait behind until the men had passed, but it was too late. They had seen her far before she had seen them. The two men moved around opposite ends of the rusted vehicle as they approached. Don't be alarmed, the one on the left said. He held up his right hand and then lowered it. A hunting rifle was cradled in the crook of his left arm. The one on the right said, You should come with us. We can protect you. Maggie stopped and watched them as they continued their approach. We're headed in opposite directions, she said. At that moment, She stopped wiggling her right hand back and forth and switched the safety off with her thumb. She was ready, and she hoped they realized that so she would not have to kill them. All of a sudden, an arm was around her neck, choking off her airway. She hadn't checked carefully enough. They had a third man who had been directly behind her. He smelled like alcohol and rotten meat. His breath was hot and wet upon her skin. He said, "'You shouldn't be out here by yourself.' There are things much worse than me that travel in the dark. Maggie quickly raised her arm, bringing the gun up so her fingers were on her cheek and the barrel was thrust under the man's chin. She pulled the trigger. Her ears rang with violence. The man was dead. She could breathe again. The ringing in her ear was intense and blindingly painful. It felt as if she had shot herself. She squinted tears from her eyes. The man up the road on the left raised his hunting rifle. Maggie aimed, squeezed the trigger, and his body crumpled to the ground. She wasn't sure if she had hit him in the forehead or the nose. She brought her left hand up and held her right wrist to steady the gun sights on the last man. He started to say something, but he didn't get a chance to finish the first word before he dropped lifelessly next to his companion. Maggie firmly pressed her palm against her ear. She swore, but she could not hear anything. She was not bleeding, and there was no physical damage she could feel other than a small burn upon her cheek. She debated about whether or not she should find a place to wait until her hearing returned. Then she chastised herself for not hearing the man creep up behind her when her senses were fully intact. She decided it was a bad start for the evening, and it was unlikely she would have another encounter like that for a while. The men were not carrying anything of value other than the hunting rifle and a few extra cartridges the man had carried. It was heavy and awkward. She took it with her, but did not plan on keeping it. If she was lucky, she might be able to trade it for ammunition or something else she could use. Otherwise, she would give it to someone who looked like they needed protection. The hearing in her left ear returned to normal after a few minutes. Her right ear recovered over time, but it still pained her, and the ringing never subsided completely. A bit further down the road, she found a small campsite where the men had been living for a while. A collection of rings and watches and other personal effects sat in a small pink bucket near a fire pit. Of all the people who had passed through the area, it seemed Maggie had been the lucky individual who had put an end to their operation. She did not touch any of the items. Taking them would have felt like she was stealing from the people the men had murdered. The naked body of a dead woman lay on top of a sleeping bag just beyond the light of the campfire. Her eyes were open, looking at something awful and inescapable in the near distance that no one other than her could see. She had large breasts and dark hair. From the discoloration of her skin, it looked like she had been dead for more than a week. Despite her condition, it appeared the men had been regularly using her body for sex. Maggie found a gray blanket and used it to cover the woman. She lay the rifle and cartridges on the ground next to the dead woman, and then she left. She wanted no part of anything the men had done. Her plan was to reach the protected zone before midnight. It had been seven years since her mother was abducted, but if her father was correct, it was possible she might still be there. It was likely as well that she might not be alive, but there was currently no other hope than the possibility of having a chance to see her mother again. Maggie had never been to the protected zone. No one had. Over the years, she had heard rumors from individuals who said their parents or grandparents had helped build enormous walls that surrounded the area like a fortress. It had been said the walls towered upward into the sky beyond the limitations of sight, and there was a barrier that protected the wall from damage and prevented outsiders from entering. When it was within sight, Maggie left the roadway she had been following. She found an embankment a few hundred feet from the road that she could rest behind and use as a vantage point to survey the area before advancing any further. Everything was quiet. The nighttime air was warm and still. The wall was a little over two stories tall. There were parapet emplacements at regular intervals around the perimeter that added another dozen feet at each location. Illumination from within the walls created a dome of soft light that covered the protected zone. A trail of bodies littered the road in front of two gigantic iron doors that sealed off a tunnel entrance. It was an entire city walled off from the rest of humanity. Nearby, Maggie could hear the murmurs of casual conversation. Two women and two men were approaching on the roadway. They continued walking past her position, apparently unconcerned by or unaware of any of the oddities before them. When they were about a hundred yards from the closed iron doors, four loud shots rang out from the parapets on each side of the tunnel and the pedestrians were dead. Maggie lowered her head, realizing she was within range of a determined sniper. She had not noticed before that a faint orange glow burned within the parapet towers near the road. Around the length of the wall, it was clear that not all of the towers were occupied. A majority of them were completely dark. The unlit intervals between the lighted towers became greater as the distance from the road increased. She kept her head low and backed away from the embankment she was hiding behind. When she had put another hundred feet between her and the walled-off city, she moved as quickly away from the road as she could. When the road was well beyond the limitations of sight, she found an area between lighted towers that was over a quarter of a mile long. The field between her and the wall appeared to have been wooded at some point in time, but all of the trees had been cut down. She took a deep breath and ran as quickly as she could until she reached the wall. She walked along the perimeter, looking for an opportunity to capitalize upon. She passed beneath a parapet tower that was emanating an orange glow. She was not concerned about getting shot because she was walking right next to the wall. Her probability of being spotted was very low, because in all likelihood, the guards were surveying the distant field, and not paying attention to what was directly below their feet. In the next area between occupied towers, there was a horizontal crack in the wall about 10 feet off the ground. Above it, there was another larger diagonal fracture that ran all the way to the top. Maggie searched the field and found a large log she could hardly move. With a lot of effort and difficulty, she rolled it over to the wall. Then she gathered four large tree branches and propped them between the large log and the crack in the wall for use as a makeshift ramp. She hoped that if she distributed her weight evenly and the branches were strong enough, she would be able to make it to the horizontal crack before they broke. Upon reaching it, she stuck her fingers into the fissure with the intent of working her way over to the other crack and then onward up and over the top. She tested the integrity of the wall and her strength by momentarily hanging by her fingers. Then she realized she did not have enough upper body strength to achieve the aerobic feat she had imagined to be relatively easy. But in that moment, a few small chunks of the wall fell away. Maggie repositioned herself on the ramp and quickly worked to remove as much of it as she could manage. After less than eight inches of excavation, the mortar and cement became gritty and sandy beneath her fingers. It seemed much of the wall, like many of the unoccupied towers, were more for intimidation than for practical defense. In a short amount of time, the hole was big enough for her to wiggle through and drop down to the pavement inside. The area of the city she emerged into appeared to be unpopulated. The streets were lit with electric lamps that burned much brighter than any flame she had ever seen. The houses were all brightly painted, but all of their windows were dark. It was uncommonly eerie. Everything was remarkably clean. There were no abandoned vehicles. The air had a peculiar absence to it. There was no garbage or refuse anywhere, and there were no carcasses of rotting animals. There was a soft popping of distant gunfire from one of the towers. In her head, she saw the pedestrians falling to the ground again, unaware of what hit them, and never knowing they had never reached the gate. Other than that, everything was quiet. Her footsteps were completely silent. There was no dirt or grit on the pavement to be ground beneath the soles of her shoes. She opened the doors to a few of the unlit houses, and it was clear they were not occupied. She wandered aimlessly until she saw a blue house with its lights on. Cautiously, she crept to a window and peeked inside. An old man sat in a recliner reading a book. His hair was short and gray around his ears and thin on top with long wisps covering a hairline that had receded long ago. His cheeks were heavy and full, even though he was not remarkably overweight. His jaw moved slightly as he clenched his teeth and pursed his lips with apparent approval and disapproval of different passages of text. He raised an index finger to his lips and licked it before turning the next page. Then he paused as if in contemplation of an indecisive thought. Then he looked directly at Maggie. He appeared more surprised and disbelieving than angry or upset. He stood from his chair. Maggie turned from the window and ran across the street. She hid behind the corner of a house, waiting to see if the man was going to pursue her. The front door of the blue house opened and the old man stepped onto the front porch. He looked around and then in a clear voice he said, You know I've seen you. There is no need to hide. We both know, even if you are standing in front of me, I am too old and too slow to catch you. He waited for a response, and then he decided to continue. Either you can come and talk to me like a civil human being, or I will return to my reading until you gather enough courage to let yourself inside and introduce yourself. Maggie moved out into the open where she could be seen. The old man studied her for a moment, and then he nodded his head. As she walked towards him, he waved her onward before turning and heading back inside his home. She found the old man had returned to his sitting room. He looked up from his book as she entered. He smiled flatly and said, Time catches up with us all. Maggie wrinkled her brow a little. What do you mean? He waved a dismissive hand and told her it did not matter. He introduced himself as Senator McCann and told her the days of help were gone. The Protected Zone used to be a thriving city. As economic disparity between the wealthiest individuals and the impoverished nation grew, walls were built around it like an elite gated community. Politicians moved there with their families, and the less prosperous citizens were winnowed away. Eventually, the remaining few who would not leave on their own were forcefully removed. Over a few short years, only the wealthiest individuals lived within the walls of the city, along with the senators and congressmen who faithfully served them. Maggie continued to look at him curiously. She said, I'm looking for my mother. I was told she was brought here, and I don't know where to go. She told him everything she could remember about her mother being abducted. McCann paused, looking confused and mildly concerned. He said, Only members of the inner court are allowed to own slaves, because they aren't really slaves. They are workers selected for specific obligations that are different from what politicians like me or field workers like yourself or anybody else does. It is a position of honor. The inner court was located at the center of the protected zone. It was where only the wealthiest and most prosperous individuals lived. Another barrier had been built to prevent common citizens of the protected zone, like Senator McCann, from entering or interfering with whatever business took place within the Enclave. McCann said, Executor Wilkin is currently the wealthiest of his peers, and that puts him in charge. He is a brilliant man. He holds all the answers. He orchestrated all of the laws that favor him and his personal interests the most while keeping everyone else at a distinct disadvantage. All of the other individuals who live within the inner court are merely his complacent acolytes, patiently waiting for an opportunity to seize power for themselves. He oversaw the construction of the protected zone and wisely has kept all of those who served him and his interests. Maggie expressed her interest in getting inside to see her mother, and McCann said, It is highly unlikely she ever would have been chosen. Even if she were, she would be much too old now for servitude, just as she was much too old then. You're almost too old. He smiled at the girl and then said, But I could probably get you past the gates. Maggie meekly asked, Will you take me there? McCann said, You'll never get inside like that. You are filthy and you smell terrible. You smell like death. He led her to the guest room and showed her how to operate the cold and hot water taps. He instructed her to bathe and then to take a shower to make sure she was completely clean. Maggie had never experienced indoor plumbing. The convenience and the control over the water temperature was novel and delightful. The flowery smells of the various soaps tickled her nose. She found them so enjoyable, she tried them all. When she returned to the guest room, she found her clothes and her backpack were gone. Without hesitation, she went to find McCann. He was in the sitting room. It almost seemed as if he had not moved since she first saw him through the window. He lowered his book and smiled at her as she entered. In a calm but firm voice, she said, Where are my clothes and my backpack? McCann raised a pointed index finger, and his friendly veneer fell away. He looked at her sternly and said, Your disgusting rags are in the garbage. And, he said, holding up her 9 millimeter pistol, this would have killed both of us. Maggie recognized what he had said was true, but it still felt like she had been betrayed. What am I supposed to wear, she said. McCann relaxed his posture and said, I don't even know if we're getting inside yet. Drop the towel and we'll see. When she did not move he pointed the pistol at her and gritted his teeth he was not used to people questioning what he said especially people like her i told you to take off the towel everything became a bit clearer to maggie it seemed as if time was no longer present and every moment forward might be lost to eternity in resignation she did as he had told her to do mccann licked his lower lip and nodded his head you are a gift Nothing more and nothing less. All of my granddaughters are inner court concubines, and one day all of their daughters will share the honor as well. They work hard in order to give me a chance of being accepted. I am proud of all they have accomplished. You will work for me too and get me that much closer to the inner court. There are girls that dream of having your job. You are no better than anybody else. Don't you forget it. Maggie remained silent and impassive. She did not blush. She did not move. Then she cleared her throat, and in a soft but clear voice, she said, I am a civil human being, nothing more and nothing less. After a moment, McCann nodded his head in approval. As he stood from his chair, Maggie leapt at him, grabbing his right hand and pulling the pistol from his grasp. He was knocked backward as they fell upon the floor. She squeezed his throat with her left hand, stifling him as he tried to call for help. She cocked the hammer back with her right thumb and placed the barrel on his forehead. His eyes were wide and wet with fear as she pulled the trigger. The explosion from the gunshot rang throughout the house and in her ears. Then, like a soft echo in the distance, the rhythmic sound of riflemen in the parapet towers popping away the lives of outsiders could be heard. Maggie washed herself in the shower again, but it did not bring elation as it had before. The pink trails of blood washing down the drain felt routine and sad. She had little doubt what McCann had told her was true. Regardless, that did not make it any easier or less awful. After drying herself once more, she headed to the center of the protected zone with determination and nothing else. The walls that segregated the inner court from the rest of the world were the same height as the walls that cordoned off the protected zone from the citizens who lived outside. However, there were considerably more parapet towers around the length of its perimeter, and all of them were clearly occupied. When it was built and sanctioned off from the rest of the city, many of the guards and resources that had been used on the exterior wall were reallocated and repurposed for the safety of the few individuals who lived in the inner court. Maggie made her way through the city without incident. Nobody appeared to notice or care that a naked girl was walking through the streets. The guards at the gate said nothing, but they looked at her in a way that made Maggie feel uncomfortable. She said, I'm here for Executor Wilkin. Senator McCann sent me. The guards continued to stare at her with undisguised desire. One of the men placed his hand on her shoulder and turned her around. After an uncomfortably long moment, he turned her back around to face them once again. Then the guards exchanged looks with one another before they opened the gate without saying a word. The vast majority of the interior was a wide-open grassy plain populated with brightly colored flowers. There were no guards to disrupt the tranquil serenity. Expansive mansions sat upon isolated hilltops, each one of them an entire kingdom of its own. A massive estate that dwarfed all of the others sat atop the tallest hill in the very center of the sanctuary. It was surrounded by an ornate and gilded fence. She walked more than a quarter of a mile before making her way through the elaborate entranceway. Despite it being bright as day, it was only upon approaching the enormous mansion that she remembered it was sometime after midnight. All of the windows were dark, making it nearly impossible to see inside. As she walked through one of the meticulously manicured gardens located outside a large bank of windows, a glass door slid open. A very old man with unnaturally dark hair called to her. He said, Are you the Lauren girl? He wore an overly full white robe that nearly engulfed him completely. Maggie asked, Are you Executor Wilkin? As she moved toward him, loose wrinkles upon his face betrayed his age. He cocked his head to the side and his eyes narrowed. Who else would I be? Maggie said, I was told to come and see you. Then Wilkins smiled, proudly showing his teeth. He said, Of course I am. He wagged his head in eager acknowledgement. He ran his hands over her breasts and down her back. He said, It's late, but I am very happy to see you. He grabbed her by the arm and ushered her inside. Maggie said, I was told that you created all of this, that without you, none of this would be possible, and it never would have happened. Wilkins spoke in two distinctly different ways. In one, he sounded disconnected, as if his words were being wasted upon an inanimate object. He said, Go into the bedroom where you can make yourself comfortable. Then his voice was bright and full, like he was overly pleased by his words. Yes, none of this would exist without me. None of it would be possible. There would be no walls. There would be no protection there would be no way to tell one of them from one of us. Everyone would have to live together. Imagine that. Imagine how horrible it would be having to live with all of the animals out there that revel in their own excrement. The bed was enormous and draped in white cashmere. Everything was white. The pillows, the sheets, the lamps upon the nightstands, the carpet, the overstuffed chairs, and the walls. Absolutely everything in the room was white. He took off his robe and sat upon the bed. His flesh was loose and wrinkled, but his chest and stomach were bloated. He patted the edge of the mattress beside him. Maggie did not move. She said, I'm looking for my mother. The muscles in Wilkins' face grew rigid. He sat forward and quickly opened the nightstand drawer. He pulled out a revolver and pointed it at her. In a firm and angry tone, he said, Who are you? She plainly said, My name is Maggie. I was told my mother was brought here years ago." Wilkin scoffed and then studied her face with a firm seriousness. Then he said, What was your mother's name? Maggie hesitated for an uncertain moment and then said, I do not know. Wilkin expelled a breath of frustration and said, Well, what is your father's name? Maggie shook her head and her eyes grew wet as she repeated the words, I do not know. His posture relaxed, but he kept the pistol trained on her. What is your name? What is your last name? In heartbroken resignation, Maggie said, I do not know. Wilkin looked both fascinated and repulsed by the creature before him. In a plain and dispassionate voice, he said, You are nobody. You come from a plague of nobodies. You are a worthless and wretched little girl. Now get up here and for once make yourself useful. Maggie nodded her head, slowly moving toward him. She placed her hand on his chest and he gently lay back upon the pillow. She remained standing beside the bed, but leaned in mere inches from his face. He did not take his eyes off her, but he relaxed with his arms outstretched and the pistol on the far side of the mattress. He said, You don't have to wait. You have a chance at redemption. In the next breath, she grabbed the lamp off the nightstand. Wilkin reached for the pistol as he sat up, and she smashed the white lamp against the side of his face. He turned to stand, but fell to the floor, dropping the pistol beside him. Maggie picked up the gun and pointed it at him. Why do you need protection in a place that is so secure? You are no different from the people you fear. If you had not given them a reason to hate you, you would be indistinguishable from them. You never would have had to build these walls to protect yourself from them if you had not treated them with reckless disregard. His left eye was cut and the side of his face was covered with blood. He said, That's not true. They have not earned it. They are kept out because they do not deserve to be here. Maggie said, You built these walls to keep them out because you are afraid they will realize what you have done to them. He gave her a lopsided smile and said, Nothing will change if you kill me. Maggie said, There is no way to know that. It is possible that the remaining members of your enclave will learn from your death and recognize that it is in their best interest to change their ways and to treat all individuals with humanity. Then she shrugged. Maybe it won't happen. Maybe more of them will have to die before the realization is reached. The only thing that is for certain is nothing will change if I let you live. He laughed derisively. You are nothing. You are nobody. It doesn't matter what you do or what happens to me. You will always be nothing. Maggie dropped the revolver and picked up the base of the broken lamp. She used the power cord as a makeshift garrote. As she pulled it tight around his neck, she said in a calm and clear voice, I am my father's wisdom and I am my mother's strength. I am the consciousness of the billions of lives you have destroyed. I am your death. Wilkin fought. He fought and struggled for a long time before he finally fell limp. As Maggie left the inner court, the guards gave her a questioning look. She said, I do not belong here. They did not detain her, and they did not leave their post. She returned to the blue house where she had left McCann dead upon the floor of his reading room. She retrieved her clothes from the garbage and redressed herself. Then she checked the clip of her 9mm pistol and replaced the missing bullets with fresh rounds. She readied one into the chamber, turned the safety on, and put the gun in her backpack. She gathered various items together and built a makeshift staircase in order to reach the hole she had made in the exterior wall of the protected zone. She leapt to the ground outside and quietly disappeared into the darkness, returning to the strife and despair from which she was born. She was eternal. She would always be. That's going to wrap it up for this episode. Thank you for downloading and listening. Until next time, this has been The Addendum.